Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 20 tonight, uh, and we're going to pick up where we left off. Um, we're coming off the battle with David and Goliath, or David and God, fighting the Philistines. Uh, Saul then is resenting David. He resents his success. He resents how people like him. Uh, and that resentment's turning into something that's just... At the end of the last chapter, we Saul was naked, worshiping the Lord, um, not really in his right mind at some level, and he's losing it. And as David continues to follow God's path, Saul continues to get off of God's path. And we're blessed because we get to see both paths, and it gives us wisdom, and we can learn about it. But here's chapter 20 starts like this. Then David fled from Naioth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What's my iniquity? What's my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Remember Saul threw a couple spears at him and missed. He's bad aim. Thankfully, David's got great aim, uh, but not Saul. So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. So Jonathan and David are in like a lifetime covenant friendship with each other. And Jonathan's, you know, David just had spears thrown at him. And Jonathan's like not really tuned into that. Like, wait, what happened? Why'd my dad? That's, that can't be the case. You're misunderstanding something. Um, so when David brings this to Jonathan, he's kind of like, are we still good? Like, are you in on this with your dad? And that's a wise question to ask. Like, how deep does this go, my friend? So why would my father hide this? Jonathan's trying to give David some assurance. Like, I'm not, my dad would be hiding this from me because I'm not on board with that. We can see what a blessing you are for Israel. Then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I've found favor in your eyes. And he has said, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. Jonathan, you may not know about it, but he threw spears at me. Like there's only, a, it was only a hair's breadth between me getting a spear through my lungs and, and your dad, you know, missing. So you need to know this is something you got to figure out. So I'm in trouble right now, Jonathan. Like, the king wants me dead. And in a kingdom, that then happens usually. So Dave and Jonathan are renegotiating their friendship, and they're finding out where they're at with each other. So it's easy to be friends when there's no, nothing testing the friendship. It is hard to be a good friend when your friend's in trouble, when they need your help, when maybe you have to sacrifice something to have their back. And Jonathan's going to prove himself to be a good friend. So we got a problem. What's the plan? So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. That line is the one where I entertain the thought that back a few chapters ago, the armor bearer that came with Jonathan might have actually been David. Because it feels a lot like what the armor bearer said to Jonathan. And at this turn, Jonathan kind of turns that back around. I'm with you. Whatever's going to happen here. So what do you want me to do, David? Jonathan defaults to David's wisdom because David has proved himself over and over and over again. 
And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow's the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I might hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant is safe. But if he's angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. This is a good test. So David's going to miss the feast. So notice, basically David's saying, notice how King Saul, your dad, notice how he reacts to me being gone. If he wants me ill, then having me at the, face, at the feast puts me in position to get killed. If, he's, if he doesn't want me ill, then it's, not, it's a viable excuse to go do the feast with your family because that's what this feast is all about. So in Numbers 28.11, this feast is described. At, in, and in the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord. So there's a burnt offering, and then they would have tradition then plays out that they'd have a feast together. So it's the beginning of the month, which is why they say new moon in chapter 5, is that's how they, det- on, a, on a Hebrew calendar, that's how they determine when the month started. It's when the moon started over. So they're, they're, their calendar's a little different than ours that way. But it's not new moon like they're moon-worshipping, you know, weird pagans. It's new moon because in the Jewish tradition, that's when they would do these feasts. They were supposed to go read the word together once a week. They would do these feasts once a month. And then they had annual feasts they would do as a nation. The weekly studies were with whoever was in your local town. The monthly studies or the monthly feasts were with your whole extended family. You'd all gather together 12 times a year. And then the annual feasts, the entire nation of Israel would gather together. So you see how these scale? So it's part of this regular routine of we meet once a week, we do something fun once a month, and then once a year we gather with everybody and do stuff with all of our churches together, the whole nation of Israel, the whole kingdom. So there's a feast. Obviously at the feast, if David has married into the family, he's expected to feast with the family. So that's either his wife's family or his family. So David going back to be with his family would follow a patriarchal society. The wife joins the husband's family. It is right then and good for David to go back to Bethlehem for this. But Saul being suspicious is going to wonder why he's gone, if there's ill intent. Therefore, verse 8, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there's iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should, I, why should you bring me to your father? So David's wise here, still allowing the possibility that Jonathan knew about this attempt at killing him. And he's testing him a little bit. Like, if you think I've done anything wrong, then you should kill me right now. Like, David's humility is like, look, if I'm in the wrong, I want to know. And you can end me because I don't want to hurt the nation of Israel. I don't want to hurt God's people. But Jonathan says, verse 9, far be it from you. No, 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 no. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined on my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? The friendship is in crisis here, and Jonathan's healing the friendship. No, we're still in a covenant. We're still together. What Saul has done is he's made Jonathan choose between obedience to his parents or obedience to a covenant that he's made, a vow he's made to have a brotherly relationship with another godly man. So the sin of Saul is causing this kind of crisis right here. Verse 10, then, then David asked Jonathan, who will tell me, or what, if, or what if your father answers you roughly? Like, if I'm in trouble, 
Who's going to let me know that? Because I'm not going to walk up and find out and get spears thrown at me again. That's not wise. So David's feeling alone. He needs a friend's encouragement. He feels like the world is against him. Everything's going against him. And he does the right thing by going to a brother in, in Christ and saying, I need a little help here. I need you to help me out. And I need to know if I'm in real danger. Verse 11. Jonathan says to David, by the way, there's not a lot of commentary in these. This is really, it's just narrative, right? So I don't have to add too much because the narrative adds a lot of the connections we need for us. And so it's, these are kind of fun chapters because the story writes itself. Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is a witness. When I've sounded out my father sometime tomorrow and on the third, or on the third day, or the third day, and indeed there's, there is good towards David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so much and so, do so and much more to Jonathan. If there's something wrong and I don't tell you, may God, as my witness, come and attack me with what he had coming for you, what saw I coming for you. So Jonathan puts his life on the line for his friend. No greater love than what he's doing here. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you might go away safely. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Uh, past tense with his father, future tense with his friend David. Like Jonathan recognizes who's the anointed right now. So Jonathan recenters the friendship on the Lord by saying the Lord is my witness. Like he puts God back in the middle of the friendship. And I just love that. You know, if we're reconciling something with a friend where there's been conflict, to recenter that friendship on Christ is a great foundation to rebuild or remend re that friendship. So we just see a great example of how to mend a friendship. Did I do something wrong? Heck no, not. Okay, if I did do something wrong, would you tell me? Yeah, I would tell you. Okay, if I did do something wrong and you knew I had done something wrong, how would I know that? You see the three questions there? And in each of those questions, Jonathan answers in a way that says we're still friends and we still have a covenant. And here's how I'm going to let you know that. So Jonathan recenters it. Um, and the word there, the Lord God of Israel, is witness. I don't know if your Bibles have this in italics. They should be. Is witness is not there in the Hebrew. So it should read, the Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow on the third day. So it's an awkward sentence, which is why they add that is witness. Um, but basically Jonathan's saying this is all happening under the eyes of God. So this is going to be your confirmation. David doesn't want to run if God doesn't want him to run. He'll stay, stick it out, and risk death. He's already proven to do that with Goliath. He doesn't want to stay if God wants him to leave. So he's testing what God wants him to do in this situation. So let's put it before the Lord. We've seen this before. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I might not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord is cut off every one of the enemies to David from the face of the earth. This is interesting. Jonathan in verses 14 and 15 says, if you need to leave because your life is in danger, look at the faith he has in what God's going to do. If you have to run because my dad's trying to kill you, please don't hold that against me and my household. Because the just thing, if somebody's trying to kill the Lord's anointed, is that they're going to get wiped out. And in the ancient world, when one king took over for another king, you wiped out your competition. Like it's standard practice. Don't have people vying for the throne around you. So Jonathan's family would be at risk. So I think it's interesting, not only does Jonathan confirm the friendship with David, 
but he actually assures or expands the covenant for one family to protect another family. And I just think it's, it's just a sweet friendship. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Well, I'll take care of your family if something happens to you. You take care of my family if something happens to me. Frankly, I think that's one of the, the securities of the church. Like if something happens to somebody in the church, we got each other's back. I hope we do. Uh, and in those situations, we're there, to, we're there to take care of one another. So Jonathan firmly shows his belief here that David's going to be the king. And he says, when that happens, but you shall not cut off your house. So he assumes it's going to happen because he believes that David's the anointed. And the only way he can believe that is on faith. He has no evidence of that right now. David's off to be a fugitive. Fugitive? Fugitive? There's nothing there other than faith for Jonathan to believe this, which tells us a lot about his character. Verse 17. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. So they, they do a vow. That's a serious... When you see that word, they're making a commitment that takes them all the way to their graves. Because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. We're brothers. We're there till the end. And these kinds of friendships are such a blessing, such a gift. And we'll see this covenant play out in 2 Samuel 9 and chapter 21. We'll see this, how this covenant plays out. For now, uh, we'll go on with our story. Verse 18. <coughs> then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. You're famous, David. They're going to miss. The, they're going to notice you're not there. And when you've stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you, where you hid on the day of the deed. And remember by the stone of Ezel. And remain by the stone of Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. All right, so David knows, and we should all know, if you're shooting at a target at a normal distance, even if you're learning as an archer, you should still hit the target. Like to miss the target entirely is a really bad shot. The son of a king would not put three arrows off the target entirely. So it would be like a very intentional thing for an, any experienced warrior to miss the target. So he's saying, I'm going to do three arrows off to the side as though I was trying. Like, oh darn, what's with me today? But David knows that's a cue to get ready to hear his message. So three misses in a row. And there I will send a lad saying, go find those arrows. And if I, expressly, if I expressly say it to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. So you've, gone, you've ran past the arrows. Come on back. The message is really clear. Then as the Lord lives, there's safety for you and there's no harm. You're misunderstanding things, David. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way for the Lord has sent you away. You should read it. This is an easy communication code that they're setting up. If I tell the kid to keep running, it means you should keep running. You're in trouble. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, in the, indeed the Lord has blessed you and me forever. We're good. No matter what happens, David, you and I are good. I got your back. This is quite a sacrificial gift that Jonathan's given because David being out of the picture, for a lot of people, Jonathan would be thinking, I'm next in line for the throne. This sets me up. Must be that the Lord doesn't like David anymore. But he doesn't give any implication of that. So there's a clear communication. There's a test that's going to happen. It's a lot like when Jonathan and the armor bearer stopped before the Philistines and said, if they call us up, we should go up. If they come down to us, we should back off. And he's testing, okay, I feel this way. My brother feels this way. Let's put it before the Lord. 
and we'll see which way the Lord wants us to go on this. So they test the spirits. They test the Lord as to which way they should go. Then David hid in the field, verse 24. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. And now the king sat on his seat as at the other times, on a seat by the wall. By the way, when a king sits by the wall, it's because they don't trust what's behind them, right? In the Wild West, the poker player that was the shadiest tried to get a seat where their back was to the wall. You didn't want people coming up behind you. So when a king sits by the wall, there's a suspicion there or, or connoted, connotation of suspicion. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. Abner was the head of the army. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day for he thought. I don't know how they got inside of Saul's head for this. Like there had to be some interviews later on. He thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he's unclean. All right, so what does that mean? Leviticus 22, verse 3, there's a law about being clean for the feasts. Whosoever he be at all your seed amongst your generations that goes into the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow unto the Lord. Going to a feast is a hallow event. Going to church is a hallow event. Having his uncleanness upon him, that soul should be cut off from my presence. I'm the Lord. Old Testament law. Under Jesus, we're forgiven. We have no excuse. We're supposed to be at the feasts and the festivals and go to things with our fellowship because we are cleaned by the blood of the Lamb. But in Old Testament law, they're not cleaned until the Lamb is sacrificed. So if they've been handling dead things is one of the ways you get unclean, please don't come eat with us. Like, go wash your hands. Go purify yourself. Clean yourself. Uh, if they are all hot and sweaty and they've been out in the field all day, they're supposed to go clean themselves. So when you come to a feast, put on your Sunday best, take a shower, right? So he's thinking, David's been out and about. He's not ceremonial clean. That's why he missed. He, he must have been working. Verse 27, and it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. Now that's strange because you can be unclean the first day, but you should have cleaned yourself. You've had a whole day to take a bath and ceremonial, ceremonially purify yourself for the feast. So missing two days in a row, something's up. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why is the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? Notice that he doesn't say David. He doesn't even want to say David's name anymore. He just says son of Jesse. Jesse being a humble sheep herder, Saul is, in every instance where we've seen Saul since Goliath, he's demoted David in his language. And now he's just the son of a sheep herder. He's not his son-in-law, because actually, by marrying his daughter, he's, he's in the royal line at this point. So he's accenting his humble family beginnings, even though he's in the royal family already. So notice how Saul's talking about him. But that's just our first clue. Verse 28, so Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. That's what they agreed upon. And he said, please let me go for our family as a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, as I've found favor in your eyes, please let me get away to see my brothers. Therefore, he's not come to the king's table. That's plausible. This is in verse 6, what David told Jonathan to say. Some people get upset because there's a little bit of a deception here. Uh, but it's also not a lie. He would have an open invite to come feast with his family because as a godly family, they're having a feast on the new moon too, right? And the, the, the family should be going with the husband's family in a patriarchal community. So this fits with everything. And it's interesting that huh, 
that when Saul calls him the son of Jesse, Jonathan's answer is, well, he's with Jesse. You said it yourself. He's the son of Jesse. He's not your son. So he's with his family. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. (laughs) That's definitely a demotion. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Again, really harsh words. Like he's disowning him with this language. I know that you think David's going to be the king. and You've abdicated your pursuit of the throne for that guy. Why did you do that? That's got to be something that's just torturing Saul. It's interesting that Saul's anger gets directed at Jonathan. An angry person, the anger is a sloppy thing. It tends to get anybody who talks to you. Like when you're testy, it's whoever talks to you next that tends to get the anger. And Jonathan gets the full brunt of it. Verse 31, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Interesting here that Saul had made a vow that he would never hurt David back in chapter 19, verse 6. So with this command, Saul breaks his vow. That puts him on bad terms with God. It's fully disobedient. It's also murder because David has done nothing that warrants death under the law of God. This is not an execution. This is murder. Right? It's done from a place of hate instead of a place of civic justice. So in this sense, Saul's just, again, he's just going off the rails. He gives a command to Jonathan, which puts Jonathan in a position where he has to choose to obey his dad, honor your father and mother. He has to choose to obey his king, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Contrasted against God's law, do not murder. And don't be a party to murder. So he's got a conflict between God's law and Saul's law. And we see throughout the Bible consistently that when that decision comes before us, it's really clear which one we pick and to be more scared of God's law than we are of civic law. So this is the first true act. Saul's suspicious of rebellion everywhere. This is the first time he's actually got rebellion on his hands. And it's interesting that the first time comes from his own family, right? Jonathan's going to be like, I'm going to serve God before I serve you. I'm just not going to do this. In fact, he actively does the opposite of what Saul commands him. Verse 32, And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? I think this is a great one-on-one approach when you, when you got somebody that's in sin to just question them. I, explain to me what has been done that warrants death. Like, show me in the word of God where this guy's guilty of something. Right? And anger doesn't always have reasons. He just hates David because he's jealous of David. So this is a legit question from Jonathan. I, I think at some level he loves his dad and he's trying to get his dad to understand you're about to break the law here. And he points that out through really pointed questions. And then Saul casts a spear at him and tries to kill him, okay? When you point out to people that they might be in sin, get ready for the spear to come your way. Because it's, it's often coming, right? By, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Actually, he just made an attempt to kill Jonathan, too. So this guy's just off his rocker. Anybody that stands in Saul's way is in trouble. What has he done is an appeal to God's law. And it's amazing to me how the early jealousy turns into hate, which now turns into rage and sin. And it's such a progression for evil. 
So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. Is this sinful anger or is this righteous anger? It's righteous anger. Because he's angry that his dad is absolutely defying God's law. He has a justifiable anger here. He ate no food on the second day of the month. I'm not going to eat at a table with you. To eat at the same table in ancient, well, actually, it's still this way in Hebrew culture, is an act of fellowship. If we share a meal together, we are in covenant with each other. We've broken bread together. We're right. We have shalom. So when he stands up and he won't eat food with his family, there's no shalom there anymore because you're acting in sin. I'm going to choose to at least keep myself out of that covenant with you for a little bit. So he's walking away, right? He doesn't get into a long debate because he'll have more spears thrown at him. Gets up and leaves. For he was grieved for David. This is David's death sentence. He's got a king that wants him dead because his father had treated him so shamefully. And the shame is that he's acting in sin with no just reason to go after David. David then is being accused, but there's no sin that he's committed in that accusation. Yet the powers that be want him dead. Kind of reflective of Jesus, but we'll see that David does sin. So God's going to make it clear David is not Jesus. But we get some images here of a sinless man being accused and attacked. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David. And a little lad was with him. <laughs> I'm just A kid comes with, I need an arrow fetcher, kid. Would you come be my arrow fetcher? Yeah, I would love that, right? This is like the nine-year-old. It's like, I get to fetch arrows for Jonathan with his famous bow of Jonathan. And then he said to the lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And the lad ran, and he shot an arrow beyond him. <laughs> like, why are you still shooting? And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, do not delay. Jonathan adds to it. He wants David to make sure he gets the message. Get the heck out of here. Don't hesitate. Run. Run fast and run now. And Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. This takes a lot of courage for Jonathan to leave the feast and go shoot some arrows. That looks kind of suspicious. Takes a lot of his courage because he's defying the king. At some level, Jonathan's paid a cost for his friendship. His friendship is worth something to him, and he's losing that connection with his dad, which is pretty valuable. And to make that decision to be with the, the God's people instead of this ungodly connection, Jonathan's going to continue to minister and be in that house. But he's got a big, he's, his allegiance has shifted even to the scorn of his king and his dad. But there's hope here. Jonathan does it because he has hope in God's anointing. When we have to part ways with people that are full-on doing evil or not hang out with them and go do evil with them, and we don't join in that kind of commiseration anymore, we can break ties with friends and family as we move forward in life. But we do it because of the hope that's set before us. We do it because we know that God's anointed is going to come back someday. Jonathan's in the same boat right now. He knows that God's anointed will return as king. And when that happens, he wants to be on the right side of this thing. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, go carry these back to the city. Soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place towards the south. It's interesting, David doesn't just run. He actually wants one more conversation with his buddy. 
fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. They kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. This is heartbreaking to David. Jonathan's like, you're in trouble, you need to go. Likely they're never going to see each other again. David prefers to be on, uh, uh, you know, to, David probably would prefer to have God's path be better. And I think this is an interesting point because we got, you know, figuring out what God wants for us and what he wants us to do is often a really tough question, but it's a worthy question. What does God want you to do? And if God anointed you as a child and you had this great victory against Goliath and then you get a job with the king, it seems like the trajectory is like, I'm moving into the kingship and everything's going ducky. But as David takes off in full tears, this seems like it's going the opposite direction, but in reality, God's building a new kingdom with this person. It is often in the Bible, not all the time, but common enough that you get characters like Joseph, who was given a coat and dreams as a young person and then was thrown into a pit and sold as a slave. Seems like it's going the opposite direction. Or Moses, who's told, you're going to free Israel for your people, kills an Egyptian, and then he has to go into being a fugitive for 40 years. And at some point in those four years, Moses had to think, well, maybe I just misunderstood what my calling was. I know I was called. It was a burning bush for crying out loud. I have no doubt that God gave me this calling, but I don't see how I'm going to get there. And God absolutely uses that. He doesn't want us to know the next step. He wants us to trust him. And that was Moses' mistake early on. It was Joseph's mistake. Joseph with pride, Moses with anger. Like they weren't trusting the Lord, that the Lord would guide their steps. But here for the first time, we get somebody that just kind of embraces it, right? And David's like, I don't like this, but I'm going to go this way. God's called me to go this way. And it's actually the right path. So going into obscurity after you've been promised this great ministry, God knows how he's going to get you into that ministry, but you don't. Do you have the faith of Moses to wait 40 years? Do you have the faith of Joseph to be singing even in a prison cell? Actually, I don't know if the Bible says he was singing in a prison cell, does it? He was, he was communicating dreams, and it was the Broadway show that had him singing in the jail cell. Okay, i got to be careful. Like, I don't want to conflate those two. Verse 42, stick to the word. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we've both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me. I won't pause on that sentence. Isn't that what we should all be saying to one another? Like, not let's be, we're pals. It's let the Lord be between us. Let the thing that ties us together be God Almighty. I just love that phrase, may the Lord be between you and me and between our, your descendants and my descendants forever. May our houses, like think of the perspective these two guys have to say something like that. It's not just our friendship. My kids are going to hang out with your kids. They might even get married. But our families are going to be knitted together for a long time. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went to the city. So David and Jonathan have a bond. Jonathan realizes that David will be king in faith. David makes a vow. It's not a bad thing to make a vow with people. Just don't make them lightly and don't break them when you make them. And that vow is to take care of Jonathan's family. I think Jonathan's fearful that what his dad's doing, God's going to punish the whole family. And so he's trying to protect his, his, maybe his wife and his kids, you know, and to do that the right way. And we get to chapter 21. Now David came to Nob and Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Remember, David was still a commander of a thousand men. 
So what's this commander showing up at this at the there's showbread here, so the showbread is in the tabernacle, which means the tabernacle must have been moved to this obscure little town in Nob, which says something about Saul's leadership, right? So when David shows up by himself, it's a rational question to say, why are you alone? Why are you here? Also, the fact that Ahimelech recognizes David says his prominence had grown considerably. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I've commanded you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. David's answer then is, I'm on a secret spy mission. I can't tell you. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. It's an absolute lie. And in chapter 22, verse 22, he's going to deeply, sorrowfully regret this lie. But David's a, he's a human. He's got sin. So he, he lies clearly to Ahimelech here. He does not have men with him that we know of or that have been mentioned. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? <laughs> Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever you can find. If you got anything, I'd appreciate some help here. And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. So part of the purity thing, if you're going to eat the showbread, the Leviticus were expected to not have sex three days before they ate the holy bread. Like, take a break, pray, focus yourself on the Lord, don't be focusing on your wife for a little bit. And so he's saying, if your men have all been keeping themselves, then you can have the showbread. Then David answered the priest and said to him, truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So, the tabernacle would have 12 loaves of bread. And the priest is like, you can have the 12 loaves. And the loaves aren't like our little things we get at the grocery store. The loaves are these big cakes like this. And they would be, they would be kind of thick, bready, meaty cakes. And there's 12 of them because they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're put before God as a symbol of God's covenant with Israel and that he feasts and he eats with them. So where David or Jonathan doesn't eat at Saul's table, David is going to eat at God's table. And I think it's interesting that when David's on the run, the first place he goes is to the priest. He goes to the men of God. And he's looking for help and food to get there. Um, so his desire to be getting help from the people of God is a good one. His lie is not good and it's going to hurt. So the priest gave him holy bread. For there's no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Essentially, they would put the showbread out, but you don't want rotten fruit at God's table. So as the bread got old and stale, they would replace it with new showbread. So the priests were good bakers, and there was always the smell of hot, fresh bread coming out of the tabernacle, along with the incense. So think of like what kind of smell that would be when you walk around God's presence, right? Um, so, but then the old bread, the priests were by tradition, the priests could eat it. Uh, Exodus 25, 35, 39, Numbers 4, they all said that the showbread should be fresh and kept fresh. They don't say or make any rules around what happens to the bread when it's day-old bread. right? So there's nothing against the law here with David eating the bread. It's, uh, and there's nothing against the law when the priests eat the bread. And there's no law that says only priests can eat the showbread. Are you getting all that detail? I'm saying that because this is one of the things they attacked Jesus for, and this is one of the responses Jesus gave. So the Pharisees were all upset that Jesus' disciples 
we're walking through the field and they're grabbing some grain off the field, rubbing the kernel off and then eating the, the grain without the husk on it. And they're just kind of munching on some raw flour. And the Pharisees got all worked up because you guys are eating on the Sabbath. Um, and at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? He, were, he and those who were with him? That's interesting because Jesus is implying there's people with him right now. But the story doesn't say that, which means there might have been two or three of his mighty men that actually were like, um, or his armor bearers kept with him on this journey. How, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for priests. Essentially, Jesus knew that the rabbis would teach that this situation is okay because it's not against the law. It's against the tradition. And Jesus brings a contrast. He brings up this story because there's no condemnation with David here. He doesn't do anything wrong. He asks permission. He has been purified. Um, and the need of human beings comes before the tradition of men. And it's a constant biblical theme. And the need for David to have something to eat takes precedence over the priest getting the bread versus somebody else. If somebody needs food, we feed them, right? And that takes precedence over what our rules are around that, right? We just get some food in their bellies. So it's an odd thing because there's no other reason to include this story in this narrative. They could just say David ran and not talk about how he ate. So for some reason, Samuel's feeling inspired to put this little tidbit in here about Ahimelech. And the fact that these priests are going to get killed, he's setting up that part of the story. Um, but Jesus uses that to explain or defend his disciples' actions later on. Traditions versus laws. Now a certain man, verse 7, of the servants of Saul were, on, were there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Dog. It's, or Doeg, but I'm just going to say Dog. An Edomite. Uh-oh, we've seen not good things from Edomites. The chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Saul's employed an Edomite as one of his uh, chief herdsmen, the guy in charge of all his flocks. And that would be considerable duty. Uh, so he's kind of high up on the chain, and, and David would know him, and he would know David. The emphasis on the Edomite there should tell us as a reader that David can't trust this guy. Uh, eventually that's going to be the, the downfall of these priests in chapter 22. <coughs> Excuse me. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. That's a lie. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in cloth that's behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no one... No other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. There's a couple ways to read this. One is that David is trusting in the weapons of this world that he didn't trust in when he fought Goliath. By grabbing Goliath's sword, he's taking up the weapons of the enemy to try to fight his battles. That's a valid way to read this particular passage. And he's lying to do it. So this is kind of a low point in David's career. He's not trusting the Lord. He's trusting the weapons of the world. He's, he's, he's telling lies that are going to hurt people. Or he's doing all these things and he's at a low point and God gives him a sweet reminder of how God operates. Like having that sword happen to be there. Oh, you remember from whatever it was five, ten years ago, you left us the sword. 
and we still have it. We've kept it for you. That God's people have retained the reminders of God's grace on Israel. And in the middle of his darkest valley here, in the middle of this horrible moment in his life, probably the worst moment in his life at this point, he's on the run, he's got people trying to kill him, there's Dog the Edomite watching him with suspicious eyes, giving him the crazy eye. And at a time when he needs a little reminder from God, there's the sword. Remember how we beat Goliath, you and me, together? And it's God's sweet little voice just giving him that reminder. So that's another way you can read this passage. Either way, David, there's none like it. That's exactly what I needed. Hand it over. Then David arose, verse 10, and he fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. He actually runs to the enemies of God in his despair here because the people of Israel seemingly are against him. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands? You know, the Philistines are like, That song's about us. We're the thousands and ten thousands. This guy's slaughtered us. Now David took these words to heart. He like, oh, I'm in trouble. And he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. You think? You just walked into your enemy's camp and announced yourself. I think it's interesting the Philistines see David as the king of the land. It's startling to me that the pagan world knows who God's anointed is, but God's anointed, God's, the king Saul is so blind to who the anointed is that he, he's the enemy of this guy. Like God's enemies know the truth better than God's people do. And that's not a good place for Israel to be. So also it says, did they not sing? And then in this verse, in verse 11, it adds dancing, which means this was a really catchy tune. Like they don't just sing it, now they're singing it and dancing it. How like that had to just like get under Saul's skin. Like he's hearing stuff outside his window and he can hear that song getting sung. And the Philistines have heard the song. They're like, that's a catchy dance. Put on, it's like made it to number one on the Philistine top 40. And they're singing the song too because it's just that catchy. So isn't like don't the Israelites sing this song and it's about you? Verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them. Pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, left saliva fall down his beard. All appearance, he's trying to pretend he's lost his mind. Beards are a place of honor. Remember, it's a dishonor to get them ripped out. So to let drool fill your beard is, is at, no one would do that because the beard is a source of pride in the ancient world. So to let drool fall down your beard is really indicative that something's wrong with your head. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see the man's insane. Why have you brought him to me? I don't need an insane guy here. Have I need of a madman that you've brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Why did you soldiers even bring him in the room? Like, the guy's nuts. So, we saw before that when David went to battle, he was wise and he proved himself wise. Here we see kind of a wise act that saves his life, right? And he doesn't say he's a madman. He just acts without pride. Like, he, he undignifies himself. So, at some level, he's feeling pretty undignified, and he humbles himself before the king, and that humility saves his life. Later on, he's going to be dancing in the streets in celebration, and his wife's going to be upset because he's, he, it's undignified. He's not acting like a king. And he goes to his wife, and he's like, I'll be even more undignified for my Lord. I don't have pride. 
I don't need to puff myself up before other people. That puffing up of myself actually pushes people away. But if I humble myself, they're not threatened by me. And even though he's killed 10,000 Philistines or more, the king of the Philistines is not intimidated by a humble guy. He's not trying to puff himself up. So he's taken prisoner, we know that. And then he goes into the prison and, and guess what he does? He writes a song. So if you want to see the cross reference, you can go to Psalm 56. He's just writing praise music in prison. Like prisoners are like, oh, I'm all locked up. And it's like, you got all day long to study the word, write songs and praise to the Lord, and you can pray. And, 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 you know, like, what a neat opportunity. And David uses the opportunity. A lot like Paul uses the opportunity. Like, if you're in prison, let's write some letters to churches and get some things done. So there's a gap in time here. While he's in prison, he comes out of this low point. Being in prison wasn't the problem. The problem was getting the heck away from Saul, who's trying to kill him. So he humbles himself before the Philistines. They throw him in a prison cell, and he's free to worship God again and be alone with God. A lot like when he was a kid and he was a shepherd. He's all alone out in that field with the sheep, and he can just spend time with the Lord. So what gets David back on track is this, seemingly, this gap in time where he gets to spend time with the Lord from a prison cell. And it gets him back in that place where he can trust the Lord. So Psalm 56, I'm just going to read one line from that psalm. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? There's no, this, this king can kill me if he wants to. I'm just going to hang out with the Lord. And if the Lord wants to remove my anointing and take me home, that's the Lord's business. An amazing sign of maturity that David was promised the throne of Israel but he comes to this place where he's like, I'm just not scared of men anymore and I don't care what they do to me. I don't need the throne of Israel. I'm not going to angle for it or vie for it and I'm not going to let my heart desire something that's not mine to take. God's job's to do this. So personally, I really like this. I admire David's wisdom. I admire his speed of thought. Like most of us wouldn't have our bearings about us enough to start acting like a madman. So there's a certain amount of shrewdness to this story. So I kind of like what he did here. I don't like what he did to Ahimelech. But I like how he's just, he's not going to get out there and puff himself up in front of God's enemies who are more than ready to take him out. So in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And here's the truth of it. David does escape this situation. Psalm, and then as he's escaping, he writes Psalm 34. Hey, I'm escaping. That's a good song. So everywhere we see David go as he's on track with the Lord, he's just writing songs and filling up the book of Psalms. It's just wonderful. So fearless David has a bout with fear. And as he does that, he says, I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears, Psalm 34, verse 1. Again, if you got time this week to go into Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, they're stunningly God-focused, and he's doing that from the worst experience he's ever had to, to date in his life. It's going to get worse for him. Like I think it's worse when your son betrays you and you're on the run. But here it's just like he's on the run for the first time. So God gets him out of the situation. It doesn't exactly say how that happens. It just goes from 1 Samuel 22. It just goes right to David therefore departed from there. But it doesn't give us the story of why they let him go. Or maybe they just got tired of feeding him, right? And food's in the ancient world hard to come by. So they're just like, yeah, just let the guy go. He's, he's not a threat. David therefore departed for there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. In the Hebrew, Abdullam means refuge. He escaped to the cave of refuge. 
So when his brothers and all his father's house had heard it, they went down there to him. Oh, that's awesome. At risk of their own life, his family, remember this is the same family that was mocking him? The same family that's like, what are you trying to get people to fight Goliath? Like his same brother that was on his case? That family came down and said, we're going to be with you in this cave of refuge. We won't let our brother do this alone. Man, as Christians, when we got another Christian that's in trouble or struggling, what we can do to make sure they know they're not alone, that's a good question for ministry. How do we make sure they know we're with them? So if you haven't texted our friend that likes dust bunnies, you know, send her a text, give her a call. We got people right now that are um, heading to the Ukraine, right? I don't want to say their names because I'm broadcasting, but, you know, we got people from our little fellowship that we know that are doing some things where they might be feeling alone. So the fact that the family just shows up, that's awesome. Verse 2, and everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, yeah, thanks for bringing all your debt, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. So these undesirables started showing up. Yeah, we'll hang out with you, David. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Can you imagine being all alone in the cave, writing a psalm, just you and God? And then the cave, you know, you're in the dark part of the cave and there's light over there and then there's a little silhouette that comes in. And you're like, who's there? And it's like, it's me, it's, it's Jesse, I'm your, or it's dad. I'm just here to hang out. You got food? And then behind dad comes in all your brothers and your family. Like, what an awesome feeling that would be. And then as you're sitting there with your family having a meal, all these people you don't recognize start walking through. Hey, you're David? We're with you. You're the guy who killed Goliath? We're with you. Saul's going nuts? I'm thinking there's even people like these people that are in debt or they're in distress. Distress isn't debt. They're just, something's wrong with Israel and we're not going to be part of that kingdom anymore. Whatever you got going, David, we're part of your kingdom. So 400 people just show up. God builds his kingdoms. David doesn't have to go on a marketing campaign. He doesn't have to broadcast. He doesn't have to advertise. God just draws people into the kingdom. And David doesn't have to do a darn thing. How affirming to David's heart after spending all that time in prison. And again, going from 21 to 22 just kind of skips that period of time. But we got psalms that show that distress that he had. But here's this thing. He was over a thousand men, so his whole army doesn't show up. It gets shrank to like Gideon-sized army, but he also knows that a Gideon-sized army can rule. So, hmm. it's just beautiful. So, he's humbled, and in that humbling, he's prepared for service. His kingdom doesn't start until he's humbled himself and thought himself nothing more worthy than a I just want to survive. On my own strength, I haven't done anything to get to the kingship. All I've done is put myself in a foreign, the enemy's prison. What a lesson for believers to see a guy like David who's got this great anointing, but until he learns to just humble himself before the Lord, that anointing doesn't, God chooses to do nothing with it. And the second he gets that thing, he gets out, and all these people just start showing up, and David had to feel like, oh, it's happening. This is what God's going to do. And he learns a great lesson as a king that the humbleness prepares him for service. And he writes another song, Psalm 142. I cried out to you, O Lord, and said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. I'm not worth much. The enemy is stronger than me. It's all you, Lord. 
I'm just along for the ride. And he becomes the greatest king Israel ever had. Is exactly what he was anointed to do, but he had to get to the place of humility to do that. The discontented there has a strong implication in verse 2. The word dis- discontented means, in the Hebrew, the bitterness of soul. So they wanted something better. Like they're living in the Saul's kingdom and they realize the evil that's going on there. And I think that that's the people that God draws to a church. The people that wake up one day and say, this world is horrible. And there's nothing in this world for me. It has everything, but it doesn't have anything I want. What I want is that intimacy with the Lord God Almighty. They give up everything they have at the threat of death. They give up their lives to gain it in a cave of refuge with David. Think of the mirror to what Jesus asks of everybody today. Give up your life so you might gain it. Throw away everything in this kingdom that you think you're in and come join God's kingdom. And that invitation is just God drawing people to him. So these people, these discontents that walk in the door, this is the beginnings of his mighty men. This is the army that God's going to build to create a new kingdom on earth. It's like the disciples. What a ragtag group of guys. But that's the group of guys that God uses to build a new kingdom with. Then in verse 3, Then David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come to you here with you till I know what God will do for me. It's interesting, one of the first things David does is he makes sure his mom and dad are okay. Don't do ministry when your mom and dad still need you. Don't let ministry get in the way of your service to that. So Jesus is like ready to die and he goes to John and says, John, you need to take care of my mom, right? That family connection's huge and honoring your mother and family's father is a big deal when it comes to when they're too old to care for themselves. Make sure you've made arrangements to care for your parents. So we see David doing that in verse three. And then in verse four, so he he brought them there before the king of Moab and they dealt with him all the time that David was in I just have in the, I think I deleted a word. What's the end of that sentence? Was in the stronghold. Oh, that's, it's down there. So Moab, remember David is part Moabite. His great-grandma was Ruth, the Moabitess. So he's got family there, connections. That means something. Um, Till I know what God will do with me. And I love this. This is just a man of God, and I totally resonate with that attitude. I need you to just take care of this for now until I know what God's doing next which implies David has no idea what God's doing next. But he's just walking in faith and doing the next thing that needs doing, which is make sure mom and dad aren't in the middle of a bad situation. The word stronghold at the end of verse 4, in the Hebrew, you know that word, it's Masada. At least I hope you do. Later, Masada gets built up by King Herod. It's possible that Masada is the, the, the stronghold that David put his parents in. So if we go to Israel and we visit Masada, it's possible that's the exact same location because the names don't change that much in, in this, this part of the world. And the term Masada at least holds to King Herod to where we know where that site is. Does that make sense? So the idea that David was in the Masada, and there's only one Masada in Israel today, and I believe there's only one Masada in Israel at this point in time too. It's the stronghold, and it's a stronghold. I could imagine conquering Jerusalem. It would be hard to imagine conquering Messiah, Masada. It's a massive climb up a hill to get to that bad boy. Today they have one of those gondolas, gondolas to get up. The diehard can hike up the hill if they really want to, but you know the old fogies can be like, that hike would kill me, so I'm going to take the, the lift up to the top of Masada. And it's in the right area where this would be. That said, what does David do when he gets to Masada? 
he writes another song. So if you want the cross-reference to that, he writes song 57. And, it, and the, the, you know, it implies that's where he's at. He's in the stronghold when he writes that song. So Saul's pursuing him. He's hiding out in the wilderness. The wilderness is, this is the stronghold in the wilderness that he's staying in. And David expresses in that psalm a really humble heart. He's praying, he's trying to gain wisdom, and he's trusting his Lord in that psalm. And that's the themes he brings up. doesn't matter where we're at. Praying, seeking wisdom, trusting the Lord. And we just see David doing it again and again. So God chooses an anointed man to lead, and God gathers people to that leader, and now David finds himself to be a leader. <clears throat> and at Masada, this stronghold, it becomes a kingdom ruled by David. It's just a really small kingdom. But that kingdom is going to grow. <coughs> Excuse me. More cough drops. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Depart. Go to the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Hereth. So we also see that no matter how comfortable the stronghold is, when God's prophet says to David, move, he moves. We don't see any sign of argument. Remember when the prophets dealt with Saul? He would often do the opposite and make up his own mind. David's not doing what Saul did at all. But the prophet comes to him and says, you need to move? And he's like, okay, I'll move. So he trusts the priests. And he moves from a stronghold to a forest. He moves to a much less secure location. But it could be that... And we don't know this, but we don't, Saul might have learned his location and was on his way with an army. But we'll never know because David moved. <coughs> Excuse me. I feel sorry for the podcast people because I didn't hear these coughs. Verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree in Ramah. Why do we always find Saul under trees? lounging in the shade <coughs> with his spear in hand. Why do we keep finding Saul with a spear in his hand? He's lazy and he's angry and violent. And all his servants standing about him. Why do we find Saul all the time with his servants waiting on him all the time? You can't hide 400 people. At this point, David, Saul's going to find out where 400 people are in his kingdom. It's just a matter of time. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjaminites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Saul just doesn't get it. He thinks his men are motivated by money. Okay, he might be right with a lot of them. And his point is, does this low-brow son of Jesse, is he going to give you anything? I'm the king. I can give you all these things. Verse 8. All of you have conspired against me. There's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There's not one of you who's sorry for me or reveals, oh, it's all about you, Saul, or reveals to me that my son has stirred up a servant against me and to lie in wait as it is this day. David's not lying in wait for you. He's trying to survive your spear. Very, very different. But isn't this just like evil? We just try to live our own lives and evil thinks we're judging them, right? I'm just living my life. I'm not judging you. You know, God's word is plenty to do all that judgment. And then answered Dog the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and he said, 
I saw this. He's like just such a nasty character. I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Saul offers this stuff and Dog is, he bites, like, I'll take it. What's amazing is that so many of the soldiers don't give David up. Like, and remember, David had the adoration and respect of so many people in Israel before he went on the run. That puts David in, in, in this bad situation. But an Edomite gives him up. None of the people of God give him up, but an Edomite does. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all the father's house, and the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. I'm here. What do you want? Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? It's a loaded question. You and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me and lie in wait as it is this day. So Saul's mixing up a lot of truth here. Like it's partial truth. He did give him a sword and bread. He didn't like tell David which way to go, so he never inquired of God for David. And he's not conspiring against Saul. Remember, David lied to him. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who's the king's son-in-law, who goes at your, at your bidding and is honorable to your house? Ahimelech doesn't have a problem saying the name David. He boldly uses the name of the king, and Saul has stopped using the name of the king. He calls him son of Jesse. So Ahimelech's stepping in it right now, and he doesn't know it because David left him hanging out to dry because he lied to him. I think if David told him the truth, he would have still given him the showbread and the sword. But Ahimelech could have protected himself here. He could have refused to go to the king when he was called. Right? That battle could have been... Ahimelech would have at least had a choice to choose between Saul or David. And 400 people already made their choice. So Ahimelech's just... He's just speaking like, David's like one of your commanders. Like, why would I doubt David? Like, I'm not conspiring against you. He's one of your men. So I'm actually honoring you when I honor one of your men. Verse 15, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. I never inquired of God for him. So he corrects the mistruth. Let not the king impute anything to his servant. To impute is to ascribe something that's not true to someone. Right? So in this case, you're saying something about me that's not true. So don't do that. Or, any to, or to any in the house of my father, my all of us priests, like, oh, my whole family, none of us have betrayed you. We wouldn't do that. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. We didn't know anything about any of this. So this is all true. And David has set up Ahimelech in a bad situation. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Oh, man. Because their hand is also with David. and Because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. It's interesting that the Israelites know God's law and they know that to kill an innocent person puts you in debt to God and that's a debt God will collect on. So when none of the Israelites would lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord, they're terrified. If I start killing God's priests, God's going to deal with me. So they're put in a situation. Obey Saul's law and his command or obey the law of God and his command. And the Bible doesn't 
flip-flop on this issue. When God's law and civic law come into contradiction with each other, you follow God's law. You do it with confidence and boldness and trust the Lord will protect you in that. And boy, you know, we had a whole group this morning in the living room talking about end times. If you guys are right, we're close to the end times here. I think we are, but I'm not predicting a particular day. We better know what that looks like and have clarity as believers that we obey God first, nobody else. We don't obey our bosses over God. We don't obey our family members over God. We obey God, period. And we do it with joy. So I want to go through this progression because Saul is losing his kingdom as David is building a kingdom. Everything Saul does by putting people in this situation. Chapter 19, verse 1, Jonathan dismisses the order to kill David and he helps him. I'm sorry, that was John, uh, chapter 20. And in chapter 19, verse 12, his wife Michael disregards Saul's law and helps David. So that's two of his kids that have defied him and, and chose to side with God's anointed. And then in chapter 19, verse 20, Saul's servants, he sends them down to kill David, and they start singing with the prophets, disobeying Saul's law. So he loses his assassins. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, David's family leaves the kingdom of Saul and joins David in the cave. And then 400 more people, chapter 22, verse 2, actually leave Saul's rule and come under David's rule. You see what's happening here? Evil destroys itself. It's self-destructive. And then in chapter 22, verse 17, the servants of the king, in the presence of the old king, say, we're not killing God's priests. You've gone too far. And that just, we're not going to do this. They disobey a direct order, and we know who Saul is. That puts your life at risk. So this is the thing. If we value our lives over our obedience to God, we become unable to do this. But if we've already given up our life, we're not losing anything. I serve the Almighty God. You do to me whatever you got to do to me. And, and, and it puts us in a position where we can joyfully experience persecution. But we see here over and over and over again, with every one of these ridiculous commands from Saul, he loses more people from his kingdom. More and more people wake up to this guy. So there's a slow and steady growth of the number of people not regarding Saul as their king anymore and choosing to serve David as their king. God's law over man's law. God wins. So they go from a passive disregard, now they're in full defiance of Saul. This has to get him off in the wrong direction. And the king said to Dog, Dog, you turn and kill the priests. So he goes to the Edomites. So Dog, the Edomite, turns and struck the priests. He killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men, women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkey, and the sheep with the edge of the sword. This is curious because remember when they killed the Philistines? Saul wouldn't do this. He had a problem killing God's enemies. He has no problem with killing God's people and his servants. Right? It's one rule for this. It's another rule for these people. And we see with evil, they often do that. One set of rules for me, another set of rules for you. Now, that tends to not work out in our direction. Right? So he's not able to do God's calling, but he is able to commit this horrendous crime without justification or evidence against God's people and against his servants. David writes in Psalm 52, condemning Dog, like he, he's mad, like Doeg just killed a bunch of priests, so David writes a psalm about it. 
And again, points the attention back to the Lord. Man, I don't know what God's doing, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. So you got a lot of psalms to read this week. As we go through David's story, like he just keeps writing music. The worse it gets, the more he sings praises to the Lord. The uglier it gets, the more he turns to the king. Verse 20, we'll wrap up. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, that name's, we need to remember that name, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I just, I knew it. It's like the Lord had told him to watch out for that guy and he didn't listen to it. I knew it. I've caused the death of all the persons in your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall be safe. I, a few things about these last verses. We get to see the character of David. In every situation with Saul, when bad things happen, Saul blames people. In this situation, frankly, it's Saul's order, dog's sword, everybody else. I, like, David didn't kill anybody, but he takes full responsibility because he was party to it. So he's following the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And he's saying, all this is on me. It was my job to protect those priests in that situation. My lying caused that to happen. Because they should have been able to run just like Abiathar. You know, get the heck out of there and come to refuge with David. 85 priests just got killed because he didn't do his thing. And for the people of God, sometimes we put a lot of guilt on ourselves. And sometimes that's well-deserved. But we got to sacrifice that back to the Lord. we got to give it to him. David doesn't wallow in this guilt. He writes a song about it, right? He moves on. So he doesn't live his life ashamed of what he's done. And this is a pretty big one to have on your conscience. But he continues to move forward in God's calling despite this horrible situation. And frankly, he, he fixes a lot of this. He stops being cowardly in front of people. I've caused the death. The way in which he accepts his part in it makes him so different from Saul. So different from an earthly king that makes excuses for everything. When stuff goes wrong, it's everybody else's fault. Don't you get that? And, you know, we don't, I try to, this is for the study of God's word, so I try not to get political. Both sides of the fence, you guys. We got a lot of politicians in America that love to blame other people for what goes wrong. We need to know we have foolish leadership when that happens. Our response should be the same as David's. We turn back to the Lord. We focus on our king. And if you have any inclination to start writing songs, start writing songs. Like, put your focus on the king. Because we're in a nation right now with a bunch of Saul's leading our nation on both sides of the fence. It's not our salvation. Our salvation's in the Lord God Almighty. And he's probably raising up people like David right now. So we find those people. We gather around him in the name of the Lord. David, at this point, is a good stopping point. We've seen David go through the valley. He's gone from prison to commander of 400. He's gone from drooling in his beard to taking kingly responsibility for the people that are not only not under his rule, but the people that he feels like he's interacted with, he has responsibility for them. What happens when we get to heaven and God said, you had an opportunity to minister to that person and you didn't do it? Are we ready to take responsibility for our missed opportunities? That's such a burden, right? It's like, oh, I don't think I can stand under the burden of the number of times I've missed an opportunity to show people Jesus. But can I take responsibility for that too? And David taking responsibility for even people he had one interaction with 
That was my job to save their life. And I just think, what a lesson for us. Like, we don't live in the shame of that. We move forward and plow forward. We try not to miss the next opportunity to love people and tell them the truth. And his fear of other people, he fails to tell these priests the truth, and it costs them their life. Man, that's the story of evangelism today. Every time we fail to show people Jesus, I'm not saying getting in arguments with people. We fail to show them the love of Jesus and that invitation to come into his community. We're costing them their life. And even though we don't kill them, they're all making their own choices, and the enemy is going after them, and the enemy draws the sword and kills them, there's a healthy regard where we take some responsibility for that. And we go to God and say, help me not miss any more opportunities. Help this never happened again. And as believers, we dedicate ourselves to being honest with people, telling them the truth. So David's rededicated to the Lord. He recognizes the impact of his actions. I believe he's repentant for it. You've got to read the Psalms. He knows where his role is, and he knows who's his Savior. And you see it in the Psalms. You see his heart just come out. And the final promise that he makes to this one surviving priest. Here's the other thing. Saul recruited his own fake priest. David gets a real piece that just, again, they're all hanging out. And up the road walks this singular guy. And he's like, who are you? I'm Abiathar the priest. All the priests are dead. But you got me. David's like, come with me. And I love the last line. But with me you shall be safe. Can David promise safety in this situation on his own strength? The only thing that keeps these 400 guys safe from the entire nation of Israel is God Almighty. But David's so sure in his faith in the Lord because the Lord's brought him this far. The Lord's going to do whatever he wants to do. And that total... Man, this is so different than his cowardice in front of Abiathar just a chapter ago. Stay with me. Do not fear. When he says do not fear, he's repeating God's words that we've already read in God's word. He's just saying what God said to other people. He knows the word and he's repeating it. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. Jesus says the same thing. There is an enemy out there. He wants to distract you from doing heavenly business for as long as the enemy can. And he'll distract you and entertain you all the way to your death. But with Jesus, you're safe. You have nothing to fear when you die if you stay with Jesus. And we see that the, king, the model of godly king starts to happen. So this is our stopping point. Because he's going to rock it in the next few chapters. And we just get these great examples of a godly king in conflict with the, the world. And we get to see what that looks like, which for me is really encouraging. But it all starts with verse 23. He just takes full responsibility. Stay with me. Don't fear, for the one who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall rule and be safe. This morning we talked about welcoming people into the body of Christ, Matthew chapter 18. And it's funny how we're doing these chapters totally different places in the Bible, but isn't that the disposition we should have to anybody that walks in the door? Hey, and we're glad you're here. Stay here because we're going to hear the word. We get the word of God here every week. Hang out with us. Don't fear. You're safe with us. We're not going to attack you. We're not going after you. We're not going to judge you. We'll tell you when you're sinning, but we're not going to judge you because the person seeking your life is the same enemy that's seeking my life. We're in this together. We're comrades in arms. And David makes a vow with Abiathar that's fairly similar to his vow with Jonathan. David's just making vows. And as a king, those vows are binding to him, and he's going to stick with these people till they die. And I just, David's just such an incredible character in the Bible. But with me, you shall be safe. 
Jesus says the same thing. When you're here, you're safe. This isn't the place you got to worry about being attacked. This isn't the place you got to worry about being mocked or made fun of. This is a place where you can just be broken because we're all fighting the same enemy. Isn't that awesome? Amen to that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the stories that you've given for our learning, uh, that the entirety of the Word of God is here to instruct us and guide us, to correct us. Lord, we thank you for that. What a gift. We thank you that in studying your word, uh, that, that you've promised us, Lord, that there's a blessing in doing that, that it's, it's a core to our, our faith. Lord, it's food on which our spirit thrives. So, Lord, may the word go out tonight. May it rest on each person's heart in this room. Lord, may your anointing on their lives, you've called them to Bible study. You've called them to draw closer to you. So I pray, Lord, that they're humble in their in their current context because we know the plans you have for them are good and not for ill but we don't know what journey those plans will take so lord help us to be content help us to be satisfied help us even from the prison cells to be writing music and praise to you help no circumstance on this earth draw our joy and attention away from you so may we celebrate you and know that we have an almighty god on our side in jesus name If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.